You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So, last week we finished the Psalms of Ascent. These were the pilgrim psalms that uh, the pilgrims would have sung on their way up to Jerusalem, and now we are moving uh, past those, and really we have two psalms here that are a very fitting conclusion to be at the, the end of the psalms we've looked at of what the pilgrims did because one of the reasons why the pilgrims all the, went up to Jerusalem was to praise and worship the Lord, obviously to dwell in the house of the Lord. We've seen that throughout these songs of ascent. And now we have Psalm 135 and 136 that are basically an invitation to praise. They are known as the Great Hallel or the Hallel Hagadol. The Great Praise is what they are literally called. They are liturgical psalms. You'll find them read uh, the Jewish in Jewish liturgy and Christian liturgy. The beginning of every Sabbath at most of the Jewish festivals, they will read through either both of these psalms or one of these psalms as they give praise to the Lord. So it's a very fitting way to do these next couple of psalms before we move into the final 10 or 12 or so psalms and then we get to the end of the book. So let's look at Psalm 135. The sole design of this psalm is really to invite people to praise the Lord and this really should be the chief activity of all saints. Uh, It should be one of the greatest pleasures and concerns in our life is that we come to the Lord, we come to the house of the Lord and we give him praise. So the psalmist grounds this invitation, which we're going to look at as we read through this psalm. He grounds his invitation, his reason why we should praise in a number of different things, namely the character of God, the works that God has done in creation, in history, because of the futility of all the competing idols and small g gods that the nations try and offer, And his conclusion after looking at all of these things is basically one thing, praise the Lord. And that's how this psalm goes. So let's look at the first section together. Psalm 135, it says, Praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, praise him, O servants of the Lord. You who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is lovely. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. So that first word in Hebrew, it is simply the word hallelujah. That's the first word of this psalm, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Of course, hallel is the Hebrew word for praise, and yah is a shortened, abbreviated uh, word uh, of the name of God, Yahweh. They'd say yah, so hallelujah is praise the Lord. That's what it is. So it translates here as praise the Lord, but in Hebrew, it's that one word. And it says, then it says, praise the name of the Lord. And in Hebrew, this would be Hashem. This is the holy name of God. Often Jewish people would not say that they wouldn't try and pronounce Yahweh like I, I, I just did. They would just simply say Hashem, the name, the great name. It's basically used as a synonym for God. So it is, it's basically the same way as saying praise God himself. Remember the name, particularly in Jewish culture, the name would represent everything that the person has or his character his will and all these types of things this is why when we say you pray in the name of jesus christ you're praying in accordance with the will of jesus christ through him and everything like that it's the same concept here but notice in this first verse you have a threefold command praise the lord praise the name of the lord praise him O servants of the lord praise 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 that is the invitation in this first verse charles spurgeon said that praise is the rehearsal of our eternal song i love that Praise is the rehearsal of our eternal song. By grace we learn to sing, and in glory we continue to sing. 
His point being, by grace on this earth, we, we learn to sing the language of praise, and when we're in glory, it will be an unnatural language, if you could put it like that. What does it actually mean to praise the Lord? Many different things. Giving thanks to him, exalting his name, speaking about him with, the fruit, uh, with our lips, singing to him, praying to him, worship to him, confessing him, acknowledging him, giving glory where glory is due, on and on you could really go through. Uh, we've seen all of these in the book of Psalms, but that is what the invitation is here. Praise the Lord. And it is directed, if you look at the ver- end of verse 1, O servants of the Lord. This invitation to praise is obviously directed to the servants of the Lord. That would be all who claim to follow him in our context. We know, uh, in obviously when you're talking about the Israelites and the temple, it was a national calling. They all had this claim on their lives. But we could um, make an application for us today. Many places in the New Testament, Christians are referred to as servants of the Lord too. I'll give you one example, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1. It says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So I think it's very fair to say that when it says, praise him, O servants of the Lord, this is just as much a command uh, to us today. Then it says, you who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our Lord God, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good, verse 3. Sing praise to his name, for it is lovely. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. So he's going to go through and give us a number of reasons why we should praise the Lord. And the first one he says is that the Lord is good. And is this not the most simple and basic understanding of why, at the very least, we should be praising God? Because he is good. He is essentially, that is his nature. He is good, eternally, infinitely, immutably, unchangeably good. That is who God is. And this echoes back. We're sort of familiar with the concept and in the new testament in for christians we often we look at jesus and it's obvious he was good but you probably had those conversations or had that thought yourself when you're reading the old testament that sometimes there are more there's a much more violence in the old testament things seem a little outside of our culture that we're used to people and this led in the early church actually to a to a split between people who would say that the god of the old testament was a different god or he was a bad god and you change and then you have jesus and there was a whole uh, number of heresies that regarding that but the goodness of god is very much laid out in the first few books uh, of the old testament so it's a theme that obviously runs throughout the bible let me read you one of the most famous ones in jewish tradition and it comes from the book of exodus and of course moses is very revered in jewish thought but this is the great revelation of God that was given to Moses. Exodus 33. Do you remember the story? He's up on the mountain and he's begging the Lord to show him his glory. And he says, well, I can't show it to you directly. You can't see me face to face, but I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to let my goodness pass you. Look, I'll read it to you. Exodus 33, verse 18. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I love the way that's phrased. He he doesn't say, I'm going to show you all my glory. He says, I'm going to show you all of my goodness. Thus, it is an essential attribute of God that he is good. And he is going to reveal himself to Moses, and and he's going to reveal his goodness to Moses. And then a little, a few verses down, we get the fulfillment of this verse in Exodus 34, verse 6, a very famous passage, uh, one of the most famous declarations and revelations of God uh, in the Old Testament. In Jewish tradition, it's known as the 13 attributes of mercy. Exodus 34, verse 6, it reads like this. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, 
compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And your Bible might read in goodness and truth there. Some, some translations have that. It's the same principle here. God's ultimate nature is good. He is filled with loving kindness. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger. This was not something that was just revealed in the New Testament. This was something that was revealed right back in the beginning, right here to Moses in the book of Exodus. I mean, we have to remember that. Then verse 3, it says, so he is good. And then it says, sing praises to his name, for it is lovely. The end of verse 3. And again, what a lovely way to describe this. Singing praises to God is described as being lovely. Or your translation might say pleasant there. I think that's a good way to describe it. In another way, it's, you could look at it. It's saying that focusing on the goodness of God and giving praise for it is actually pleasant for the worshipper. Meditating on this attribute of God's character, his goodness, his loving kindness, his compassion, is pleasant. And you can hopefully that's self-explanatory why that would be. It is pleasant. And then he goes on and he says, uh, verse 4, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. He gives the election of Israel as another reason why we should be praising God. And of course, obviously, in the context, this is directly to Israel, but it's very easy to make an application to the church too, but we can still give uh, praise for the election of Israel because it is through that election that obviously our Messiah ended coming into this world. But we have to think about this. Why would the election of Israel be a reason for praise? And this is given to us in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 to 8. And again, it's to do with the goodness of God. It says in Deuteronomy 7, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. That is the reason why he elected Israel, because he loved them. And it was an unconditional love, not in response to anything that they did, because it's coming from that goodness of his nature again. It's just so that is why another reason I believe this is held up to the nation now is another reason to praise the Lord. So these are the grounding reasons, if we could call them. The character of God, the goodness of God, the loving kindness, the compassion, the mercy, all of these things that are pleasant for us to dwell on. That's the grounding about God's character. And now he gives another line of argument for why we should be praising God. And that is the Lord's involvement in creation of the world. And we'll see this. Let's read verse 5 and to 7. It says, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas and all deeps, he causes the vapours to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain. He brings forth the wind from his treasuries. It says the Lord is great. Now think of this. Not only is the Lord good, but the Lord is also great. These two attributes play off each other beautifully. And to express this, this is really speaking of the, the exalted sovereign position that the Lord has. He is so far above all other claimants to deity, all other idols. You notice all other gods, as it says there, the gods of the nations. It's talking about the small g gods. He is far above them all. He does what he pleases. Now, some people might be a little, find that a little bit of a harsh term, but remember what we've just learned about God. This is God who is ultimately good by nature, slow to anger, filled with compassion, abounding with loving kindness. If there's anyone you would want to be able to do as he pleases, it is someone like that. And that is exactly the point here. He is so good that we should give praise for that. He is so great that he does what he pleases. His power extends over all 
of creation. It is his. He answers to no one. That is the point. He should not have to answer to no one. He doesn't answer to anyone. He does what he pleases. He is the supreme God of all gods, the King of kings, and he is good. Let's look at verse 8. We'll read the whole next section, kind of goes together, 8 to 16. He smote the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast. He sent signs and wonders into your midst, O Egypt. Upon Pharaoh and all his servants, he smote many nations and slew mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan. And he gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his people. Your name, O Lord, is everlasting. Your remembrance, O Lord, throughout all generations, for the Lord will judge his people and will have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are but silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. So now he moves on with the theme of God's greatness. God is good, God is great, God is above all. And now he gives practical demonstrations of what he has done to prove this to his people, the nation. And we see a little snapshot of the history of the nation of Israel in this in the rest of this psalm he is showing basically how his plan has progressed through history proving the fact that he does what he pleases he demonstrates his greatness by firstly redeeming his people from in, from egypt this is when it says uh, smoke the firstborn of egypt we know what that led to didn't it this led to the redemption of god's people this led to what we call the exodus and ultimately that was what we would look at as a picture of our redemption from slavery to sin so he led them out of Egypt that was showing his greatness and also remember it said that he was so great he's above all other gods one of the things about the 10 plagues of the exodus was each one of those plagues was related to a god of Egypt so he was not only showing his hand strong in doing what he pleases removing his people he was also showing his hand strong that he is above all these other gods as he commanded clearly the elements of the world that they was these Egyptian gods were supposed to be uh, in charge of so he overrided his authority with them. That's one of the, the, the background narratives that's going on in the 10 plagues, uh, the gods of Egypt. He showed himself strong over the gods of the Canaanites. He took Israel into the wilderness. He promised them a land. The nations obviously objected to God's promise of the land. God gave them the land. He removed those people. He showed himself strong against those people who would come against him. And remember, this is in the ancient Near Eastern context. The way they would think is that uh, it was more of a tribal sort of existence there that you, by winning the wars is how your God is stronger. So it, it's almost like understanding it within that context would have spoke much more to the nations and the people at this time. The righteous God will judge with compassion and truth. The psalmist contrasts how great God is with the folly of idol worship. Of course, one of the reasons why the nations objected to the children of Israel is because they were not listening to the promises of God. If they had come and joined themselves as they were allowed to do as, as worshippers of God to the nation of Israel, they would have understood that the promise that God made, the king of the universe, the owner of the land, was that this people would have that particular plot of land that he promised to them. And it's the issue of promise that is the issue here. But because the gods of Canaan were worshipping Baal and they were worshipping these other deities, they were listening to a different set of promises. So it was quite literally a battle of whose word is true. And that not that the eternal battle of, of the history of the ages, really? Whose word is true? Man's, Satan's, or God's? And we know the answer to that. And God is the only one who is truly good. Therefore, we can give praise for the fact that he is 
in this position in this psalm. And this is why we have this, this narrative going on in this psalm here. And I love to look at the, the verse where it says, those who make them will be like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. This is referring to the idols. He says they're nothing but the work of man's hands. It must be quite laughable to the actual true living God when he sees man bending to a little wooden statue that someone's carved in their, in their own time or praying to things that are inanimate objects. This must, must seem quite laughable, really. I mean, it reminds me of that verse in Psalm 2 where God sits in the heavens and laughs at the people raging against him, quite literally. He says, they're nothing but the work of man's hands and those who make them will be like them. I find that just a fascinating verse. You could put that in, in our language, you become like what you worship. And that, is that not a true thing? And this always makes me think of something like someone, a culture like the Vikings. They, they worshipped warrior gods, and thus they were a warrior people. You think of what we've talked about in Revelation, worshipping the goddess Diana. She was a sexual fertility goddess. Thus, there was prostitution rights and all sorts of sexual immorality going on associated with the worship of her. In our culture, we might not have the name of gods, but we, we definitely worship things. We worship status. We worship money. If you're worshipping these things, you'll become like them. It'll, it'll consume you is what that means. It'll become your whole life, and you will, you will follow in that way. This is, so this is really one of the most profound verses I find in this. And, of course, the contrast of this is also true. If you worship the God of Israel you will become like the God of Israel in many ways. And this is, is that not what actual discipleship is? When, Christ said, when Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, the call to discipleship is to imitate Christ, i.e. becoming more like Christ. That's just the outworking of a verse like this. You become like the gods you worship. We are being sanctified and transformed to become more like the image of Jesus Christ. That is discipleship, that is the outworking of this verse. So I, I like to have those two things in your head as you contrast. What is it that's consuming your life? What is it that you could say in, in our vernacular, you're worshipping? And, what, and notice how the way that will affect uh, how you live, how you think, the things you do, and make sure that our time is consumed uh, with being absorbed and totally focused on the Lord Jesus. Now let's look at the verse 19. Let's just finish, finish the rest of the psalm. He says, O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who revere the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. So just as the psalm started with a threefold declaration to praise, praise the Lord, praise, praise his name, remember how it started, now it ends with a fourfold declaration to bless the Lord. And what's the difference between blessing and praising? Is not, I mean, they're kind of used interchangeably at some points in the Bible, but there's a slightly different uh, connotation to it there. But the psalmist basically says he's gone through that history of Israel. He's looked at all those ways that God has shown himself not only to be good, but to be great, to be all-powerful, to be above all other gods, to be the one who fulfills and works within history to redeem his people, to fulfill his word, to fulfill his promises. He is the eternal, immutable, living God. That's what this psalm is doing. And the psalmist says, the response of his people the servants of the Lord that he addressed this invitation to should be now to bless the Lord the Hebrew word for bless Barak it's it literally actually means to kneel and if that's a nice way to think of it if 
kneeling before someone gives them sort of a, a posture of submission, a posture of acknowledgement that they are greater than you. And remember, we've just seen we're praising and blessing the one who is the greatest of all, the king above all kings, and therefore we should kneel before him and we should do honour the Lord through praise, through worship, through the adoration of his name. That's just part of what it means to bless. You could go more about that, but that is our response to a God like this. And whilst the history of Israel can look through and point to all these nations, we can equally point to those things in the Bible. But most of us will have things in our own life too. He would have done mighty works. He would have saved us to start with. That's a reason we can give praise to God. Most of you probably got testimonies in your own life for things that he has done that you can look back on and you can praise the Lord too. And it's a good time to remember uh, these sorts of things. This should be our attitude. Now, and then look how he ends the psalm. The end of verse 21 he uses that word again in Hebrew, hallelujah, praise the Lord. So that whole psalm is encompassed between these two hallelujahs. And I personally love that. I think it's a picture of the Christian life, really. Should not our whole Christian lives from the day we were saved to the day we go and be with the Lord be really bookended by two hallelujahs, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And everything in between is stuck between those two things. With that, let's just move straight into Psalm 136 because it basically follows on, continues the same theme. This is the actual one that's called the Great Hallel. Some people associate the first one with it, some read it together, but Psalm 136 is the Great Hallel, technically. It's a fascinating psalm. Probably not the one that people enjoy reading, I'll be frank, when you're doing your reading through the psalms because, as you may notice, if we look through it, there's huge amounts of repetition. In fact, there's 26 verses and the, there was a line repeated 26 times word for word where it says his loving kindness, if you look at it, is everlasting. And what a good thing to repeat. But there's a reason why it was done for this. This is what they call an antiphonal psalm, antiphonal psalm. Basically, we would say a responsive psalm. So this is responsive singing. Remember, the psalms were worship. They were used as worship in Israel. And this is a responsive psalm. So what most people presume was happening here is that the Levites would most likely sing or chant or, or do whatever they did, the first part of the psalm, and then the people of Israel would respond with the refrain, for his loving kindness is everlasting. You actually see this quite a bit in the Bible. In the book of Ezra, chapter 3, when they've returned and they've just finished laying the foundation of the second temple, it then says, we see the Levites praising God and the people responding with this phrase. And it's a, his loving kindness is everlasting. It's actually a phrase, if you're sensitive to it, you'll see it on a lot of public worship occasions in the history of Israel. You see it when uh, the ark was moved to Jerusalem. We spoke about that recently, when D David wanted to bring the ark uh, back to Jerusalem and put it in the tabernacle and then wanted to build a temple. David assigned Asaph to lead singing and giving of thanks when they got the ark back to Jerusalem. 1 Chronicles 16.34, he says these words, "'Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, "'for his loving kindness is everlasting.'" So most scholars really presume that this little phrase, this little, uh, he, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his loving kindness, was basically a liturgical, had liturgical flavor in the nation of Israel. It was something that was often used when there was a time of public worship. A little later, just after David has done that, they are seen worshiping. And it says, with them were Heman, Jeruthum, and the rest who were chosen, who were designated by name to give thanks to the Lord because his loving kindness is everlasting. And many more examples I could give you of where you see that little phrase coming up. 
Obviously, Psalm 136 is the main place that you're going to see it because we're going to read it 26 times. Psalm 136, fascinating psalm. If you can imagine, now we did that here, obviously, that was our first time, so it wasn't probably as uh, musical as it would have been back in the temple. But imagine if you were used to doing that, being led by a professional choir of Levites every single time. And, of course, it would be in Hebrew, so it would probably have a slightly different flavour to it. But that is what would be happening uh, in the communal courtyards of the temple when the Levites would have been, been leading it. And actually, if you're familiar with any of the liturgy of the early church or even the Anglican church and the early Methodist church, they have, like, you know, I've always said I do my devotions in a Methodist, an old Methodist hymn book. They have a section at the back that is called Responsive Singing where they have like a number of different songs and worship and scripture readings that have little bits like that that the audience go through. I was actually very tempted to introduce a few of them when I was studying this psalm. But, okay, let's get into this psalm. So he starts off, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Now, of course, this is our, our link, really, with the psalm before it, because what was the first thing we were told to praise the Lord for? That he is good. So the psalmist, again, double emphasis here. That's why these two psalms are referred to usually together as the great Hallel. Praise the Lord for he is good. You give thanks to the Lord for he is good. It's, it's emphasizing this theme for us, for his loving kindness. Now, it means, what does it really mean? Let's talk about giving thanks for a minute. We talked about praise. We talked about blessing. Now let's talk about giving thanks. Obviously, there's some, these things are kind of interchangeable in many, many ways, but there is some subtle nuance between them. Giving thanks, the word quite literally has the connotation of to acknowledge or even confess, actually, you could translate it properly in some context. And this is, I want you to think about this, it's not just giving thanks glibly. The idea of it is that it's a thoughtful, grateful worship, spelling out particularly what we know or have found of God's glory to be true and God's deeds in your life. So it's a, it's a contemplative, thoughtful giving thanks for what he's done for who he is and all these sorts of things the expression we would often have is just count your blessings you ever heard someone say that to you count your blessings it's a usually a bit glib but the actual concept of it is quite biblical it's coming from this sort of a verse a thoughtful contemplative giving of thanks for god who he is and what he has done in your life and as we looked at in the last psalm this begins with i believe understanding the goodness of god because what does it say in James? You know, every good gift has come down from the Father of lights from heaven. Every good gift. There's a good God who gives good gifts to his children. This is uh, the blessing of the Lord. Now, if you don't, if you're in a bad place again, often we'll be in places in our lives where you may think, I don't necessarily have in my, anything in my actual immediate surroundings or circumstances that are going very well that I would want to give thanks for. We all go through those periods in life. But the point is, this is why I believe both these psalms start with that thing, God is good. Even if circumstances in this fallen world are not always good and are here to test us and to try us, the character and nature of God, as proven through history, ultimately demonstrated with the cross for us New Testament believers, is always something we can give thanks for and praise. And it will always be pleasant for us to do that. In fact, many people say that if you are in a period of depression or a valley, one of the best things you can do is meditate on this and give praise because God is good. And that will actually lift your spirits, like it says, because it is pleasant for the worshipper to do that. Then it says his loving kindness is everlasting, as we've read 26 times. The word loving kindness, chesed in Hebrew, this is a rich word. You could do entire hours word study on this. To summarize it, 
it would be loyal covenant love. A covenant-keeping love, a love that keeps its promises, a love that has the best intentions for the people it is making a covenant with. This is some of the idea that this Hebrew word chesed has for uh, translated loving-kindness. Some translations will have it as mercy, all these different translations, but it's loving-kindness is probably the best way that we can describe that. It is a love that is everlasting, a loyal, covenant, faithful love, a love that never ceases, will never run dry, never turns off, never changes, never stops. It is eternal in the same way that God is eternal, because it is actually an attribute. It's not just some nice feeling that he projects onto people, kind of like the way we sometimes misinterpret love. Most people think they love someone when they have nice feelings for them. This is not the concept here. That's a cheapening of the idea. The idea here is that it is a deeper covenantal love, and it will never change. When we're talking about God's love here, it is absolutely unconditional because it is attached to his nature as we've seen, which is immutable, which is unchangeable. I, the Lord, do not change. It says in Malachi, doesn't it? This is the concept here. And if that's the promise from the Lord, we can always fall back on this promise. We praise him for it. We bless him for it. We give thanks for it. His loving kindness is everlasting. It says he is the God of all gods, the Lord. Sorry, the God of gods. Give thanks to the God of gods for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Again, This is very similar to the way the last psalm progressed. Firstly, his goodness, and then his glory, his majesty, his sovereignty above everything else. This is exactly the same pattern here. He is a God who is a God of all gods, the Lord of all lords, clearly emphasizing his uniqueness, that he is incomparable, that he is above all things forever. This is a good reason to give thanks. And then in those next six verses, he talks about aspects of the created order. Again, very similar to the other psalm. He's actually making a reference back to Genesis 1 and the creation of the earth. For And this tells us a lot about the creation of the earth. For mankind, the earth was created for mankind. It was actually an expression of his loving kindness, that he wanted to create us a habitation where he could dwell with us. That was the purpose of Eden. That's why you have God walking in the garden with Adam and Eve in Eden. This was the idea of it. And this was sullied. This was ruined by sin. And the story is one of redemption and restoration to that, ultimately leading to what we call the new creation, the heavens, new heavens and the new earth, which is ultimately back to a place where God is dwelling with unbroken fellowship with his people. That is the story of the Bible in many ways. But this is an expression and a reason to give thanks for his involvement in doing that. And we can actually sit and still appreciate the the beauty of God's creation, even in a fallen world where we're just seeing a, a a fraction of the original beauty as it's been marred by sin for so long. But even when we do that, you must have probably had those times where you do look at just the, as much as the untainted creation that you can see and you look at God and you think, the mind of someone who would create something like this must be beautiful. There's actually a whole argument for God based on beauty in the field of apologetics and it's quite a powerful one. But let's read, I've got it all to read here again, but. Do you know what? Let's just do it. Verse 10. To him who smote the Egyptians in their firstborn, his loving kindness is everlasting. And brought Israel out from their midst, for his loving kindness is everlasting. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his loving kindness is everlasting. But he overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. 
for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who smote great kings, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And slew mighty kings, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And Og, king of Bashan, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And gave their land as a heritage, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Even a heritage to Israel, his servant, for his loving kindness is everlasting. So again, Notice how similar this is to some of the elements in the last psalm there. We see him relaying the truth of his faithfulness to his people and his covenant loyalty, loving kindness in relation to the things that he has done through the history of Israel, redeeming them from Egypt with a mighty outstretched arm, overthrowing Pharaoh and the Egyptians who was chasing them. Do you remember the the dramatic scene where they're being chased to the edge of the Red Sea and they end up getting uh, destroyed and swallowed in the Red Sea? He then cared for them in the wilderness, dealt with their moaning, their grumblings as he was shaping and preparing them for entrance into the promised land. He dealt with those usurpers of the promised land, those worshippers of other gods who sought to to kill his people and worshipped other gods. And he led them to the promised land. He's holding all of these things up as reasons to praise as reasons to give thanks his loving kindness is everlasting verse 23 who remembered us in our lower state for his loving kindness is everlasting he's rescued us from our adversaries for his loving kindness is everlasting who gives food to all flesh for his loving kindness is everlasting give thanks to the god of heaven for his loving kindness is everlasting now notice after recounting all of these deeds historically of israel The psalmist now changes his tense and he gets personal. Notice verse 23, who remembered us in our, he starts doing it in a personal context now, in our low estate. And this is a good um, lesson for us. Believers look back at God's past deeds. We read of them in the Bible, as I mentioned, and we have personal experience that we can add to that. This should cause us to affirm that he is good, that he is still active today, that he is still at work in history. Sometimes people make the argument, don't they, if, you know, if God is so real, why is he not doing things like he did in the Old Testament? Actually, he is doing some pretty miraculous things all around the world. It's just a matter of coming out of our Bibles and finding them, seeking them and seeing them where, where they are. But he is still at work. And ultimately, things have changed since Jesus Christ came into the world. And the, and the biggest miracle that he does do is every time someone gets saved, they are defeating death. And ultimately, that was the whole point of all the other miracles. They were actually supposed to be leading and pointing to a God who would one day defeat the ultimate enemy, which would be death. So that should be the highest miracle on our charts of what is a great miracle, someone defeating death, because it says we are held, everyone is held under the power of the evil one because they have the power, he has the power of death over them. That was what the cross did, released that power, took that power away from Satan, gave it back to, to all of us, basically, by believing we're born again and we overcome death. He still rescues us today. It says he rescued us from our adversaries. Israel could proclaim that. We can proclaim that today. We know our adversaries are mainly the world, the flesh, and the devil right now. He rescues us from them still. He still gives food to all flesh. That's basically a way of saying, talking about their experience with the manna and the quail in in the wilderness. For us, it just basically means we will praise him for his deliverance, but we will also praise him for his provision in our lives. It's another reason to, to give thanks. And then he says in verse 26, give thanks to the God of heaven. 
And I love that as a way to end the psalm. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his loving kindness is ever lasting. So as the psalm begins, the psalm ends, really. In view of all these things that we've just read and all these things that God has done, the only fitting conclusion for all servants of the Lord is to lift our voices, to declare his praise, to bless him, to give him thanks, and to exalt his name. Everything he's done in creation, creating this world, everything he's done in redemption, everything he's done and accomplished to deliver his people, everything that he's shown us with his steadfast, covenantal, loyal, faithful love that he has proven time and time again through history, ultimately leading to that ultimate demonstration that it says in Romans 5, 8, doesn't it, that it was the cross of Jesus Christ that forever proves that. All of these wonders are a deed, a record, a history book, you could say, that prove God is good. That's the things about these two psalms. Let me just end with one little uh, story from church history that involves this psalm. February 358 AD, church father Athanasius, if you know that name, he was one of the uh, the bright lights of the early church, fought heroically against uh, the Arians and defended the deity of Christ when there was actually a time in history around this time when those who believed that Christ was God were uh, we almost lost actually in the, in the organized church at this point the, the Arians had almost won the day people were convinced by them so that would be like most people Christian would be Jehovah's Witness that's the same way of saying we almost lost but we had a few brave defenders at this time Athanasius being one of them who stood up and proclaimed Christ's deity so eloquently that he turned the tide and he was one of these people and obviously in the fourth century the church had mixed with state so you had a mixture of state and political control that's why Arius could win the would win the day because these things were connected and christians were not popular with the politics of the day the roman empire at this time so there was a lot of stuff going on here but he had been leading the fight for the eternal sonship the deity of christ knowing that the survival of christianity depended on it he had many enemies for political even more than theological reasons and they moved the power of the roman government against him That night on February 358 AD, the church was surrounded, his church, Athanasius' church was surrounded by soldiers with drawn swords and people were frightened. With calm presence of mind, it's reported that Athanasius announced the singing of Psalm 136. And this shows you that in the fourth century, they sung this psalm. You know, like I said, like actually, I think the evangelical church has lost a lot that we don't do things like responsive worship. There's something to be said for that. It's in fact very biblical, and it was around uh, long, long before some of our traditions were. He announced the singing of Psalm 136. The vast congregation responded, thundering forth 26 times, his loving kindness endures forever. And when the soldiers burst through the doors, they were staggered by the singing, and they stood and listened. It said that Athanasius kept his place leading that psalm until the congregation dispersed without any hindrance from the Roman soldiers. And then he too disappeared into the darkness and found refuge with his friends. Many citizens of Alexandria were killed that night, but the people of Athanasius's congregation never forgot that although man is evil, God is good, he is superlatively good, and his loving kindness endures forever. Amen. Let's praise the Lord.